I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Susan Moran. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, April 5th, 2011. Coming up, a special episode of How on Earth in collaboration with the Conference of World Affairs. Seth Shostak talks about pseudoscience and extraterrestrial life. And Larry Schweiger talks about earthbound life, wildlife that is, and climate change. Hello and welcome to a special edition of How on Earth. This episode is done in conjunction with the Conference of World Affairs, which is being held this week at the University of Colorado's Boulder campus. We have two guests in the studio today who are participants in the Conference of World Affairs. The first part of the show is Conference Panel 2051, titled Pseudoscience, with guest Seth Shostak. Dr. Shostak is a senior astronomer at the SETI Institute in Mountain View, California. The acronym SETI, for those of you who don't know, stands for the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. However, for this show's panel topic of pseudoscience, we may focus on intelligence of a more Earth-bound type. Seth also hosts a weekly radio show of his own on science called Are We Alone? So now the tables have turned or the mics have turned and the interviewer becomes the interviewee. Welcome to the show, Seth. Thank you very much, Joel. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, so, Seth, uh, tell me, uh, what, starting off just with pseudoscience, what is the definition of pseudoscience? Well, I, I, you know, I think I would probably have to quote Justice uh, Potter on that. When remarking on pornography, he couldn't define that either. and said he'd know it when he saw it. And I suspect that's the case with pseudoscience, although some people seem to know it when they see it and others don't. Pseudoscience, uh, in general, is belief in things for which there really isn't any good, compelling scientific argument as to their existence. So... What kind of pseudoscience is on your mind these days? Mostly what's on my mind, of course, is pseudoscience involving aliens, and that has to do with my job, which is, of course, to try and eavesdrop on intelligence that might be out there in space. And I get, uh, I'll tell you quite honestly, Joel, I get about five or ten emails and phone calls every day from people who are having difficulties with aliens in their personal lives because they think the aliens are here, which is a belief shared by one-third of the American public, by the way. One third. One third. It's not a fringe belief. It's so not one percent. One third of the people believe that UFOs have an aliens, extraterrestrial life, and are visiting Earth. Yes, that at least some of the uh, UFOs, and, and many tens of thousands of sightings are reported every year, uh, that at least some fraction of those are actually due to alien craft who are buzzing the countryside and occasionally hauling you out of your bedroom for experiments your mom wouldn't approve of. Well, I, I, uh, I'm sure I wouldn't want to experience any of those, but uh, why, why do you think this belief is so prevalent? Well, you know, that's really a very good question for which I'm not sure there's a, an extremely good answer. To begin with, people do see things in the sky. Uh, it almost never is the case that somebody calls me up and they say, you know, I saw this thing and so forth, and I think that they're simply fibbing, telling me a story. Uh, the, the question, of course, is what did they see? I mean, I've talked to pilots. I've talked to Apollo astronauts. They, they all have stories. They're sincere. Oh, they're sincere and they're credible, but... You know, witness, uh, eyewitness testimony probably wouldn't hold up in a murder one trial, and it really should never hold up for science. That's not good enough for science. So it isn't a question of whether they've seen something. The question is, have they seen something that's truly extraterrestrial? But why do people want to believe that? I, I think that, you know, when you're a kid, there are these 
somewhat supernatural beings that can take care of your every need. We call them parents when you grow up, but you know, at that point, you don't Which recognize Which some people that. think are aliens. Yes, well, in some cases, perhaps they are. But, and, and so we're used to this idea that there may be superior beings that have a personal interest in us. And you notice that the aliens very often do have a personal interest in us. They, they abduct very you. Very personal. Right? Yeah. Too personal. So, th- I mean, this has kind of a similarity to... Uh, to religious beliefs as well, you know, wanting to believe in some greater parental power to that has knowledge beyond you. Indeed. And in fact, if you look in history, I mean, uh, UFOs really date from uh, the post-war period when, you know, the sky actually was filled with objects, most of which were made by us. I would say all of which were made by us, unless they were atmospheric phenomena. But prior to that, I mean, even going back to the Middle Ages, going back, in fact, to classical Greek and Roman times, you'll, you'll find sightings of things, but they were ascribed to angels or gods or, you know, they, they had a different nomenclature, but it was the same phenomenon. So I think that this is something that's sort of hardwired into us. So you get these phone calls, you get these emails. What do you do with them? Well, I answer them all. I talk to all the people that do uh, call me or, or, or write me. And, I, you know, and sometimes they send photos and so forth. And I try uh, the best I can to explain what I think is in the photo. And sometimes they take umbrage at that. I've certainly had sessions at the Conference on World Affairs in which people have uh, argued energetically, shall we say, uh, their point of view, namely that, uh, you know, this part of Colorado is also being buzzed by the aliens. And uh, why do they uh, – I mean, they are – unidentified yes, flying objects. Most so of them. By definition, uh, you don't know what they are, although people jump to the conclusion that they are aliens, some UFO from outer space. But what are the more prosaic explanations usually for these? Well, there's a whole laundry list because many of these sightings, is particularly in the very early days of the modern UFO phenomenon, which dates to the, la- uh, the late 1940s, they were investigated both by academics and by the military. The military in particular, the Air Force, was very interested to know what these things were. Not, I don't think, because they thought they were alien craft, but they might have been Soviet craft. So they had an interest in knowing what they were, and they would... Uh, they would get these expert panels to look into some of the better cases. And they come up with a laundry list, you know, obviously aircraft, balloons, uh, various kinds of atmospheric phenomena, uh, geese, I mean, kites. It was a whole list, right? And it turns out that if you apply those criteria to most sightings, you can explain 90 95% of them. There's always 5 or 10%, however, of these reports that you, you just don't know what they were. And the people who are convinced that we're being visited say, see there, those are the ones. It's those in are the, the gaps. That, those, right. Mind you, I, I suspect the Denver police solve, if they're following the national average, they solve 65 or 70 percent of all the homicide cases in the city, and they're, and they're all committed by humans against humans. But what about the 35 percent that they can't solve? Are those they're aliens. The, they're the aliens that are murdering the citizenry of, of Denver? Probably not. That would be the wrong conclusion to jump to. But that's what you do in the case of the UFO phenomenon. Um, some explanations I've heard, you know, people say, you know, swamp gas or something like that, you know, that can create some weird illusions. But um, astronomical uh, objects, Venus is often mistaken for a UFO, I hear. Jimmy Carter famously saw a UFO, and the best explanation that I've heard for that is that it was indeed Venus, because Venus can be bright enough, you can just about read a newspaper, if anybody remembers what a newspaper is, you can just about read a newspaper at night from the light of Venus. But Venus is just sitting there. How can you mistake it for some well, UFO zipping around? It, it, well, the fact that it's just sitting there means that it uh, does some strange things. If you're driving along the freeway, right, uh, you'll notice that Venus follows you. <laughs> so you figure, all right, then that's not an aircraft, right? It, it's hanging there. And it's following me. Wait, you mean Venus freeway. follows you too? Yes. It, well, <laughs> <laughs> could, could be important, Joel. Uh, so 
uh, UFOs, I guess, are very common, and it probably comes with the with the territory of the work you do for search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Now, SETI itself has that ever maybe back in the early days been considered a pseudoscience itself by some other scientists? Well, certainly, I get. Uh correspondence from people who think that it's a waste of their tax dollars, for example. And, of course, I write them back right away and say, I, I, I wish tax dollars were actually involved. No tax dollars are. This is all run by a donation. So, uh, it, you know, if you don't like it, that's okay. You're not paying for it. Uh, people have accused it of being a religion because we believe in something that, you know, we, we think something might exist, but we have no proof. And it's true. Unlike the UFO community, the SETI community does not claim to have had success in finding the extraterrestrials. But if we do find a signal... It, it can withstand the scrutiny of science, which is to say if we say, look, there's a signal coming from, you know, this spot on the sky. We get the coordinates, the frequency, and so forth. Anybody with a big antenna can go and check that out themselves. You can't hide the evidence. You, you, you can't stack it up at Area 51 or some other nefarious location. If we find something, you can verify it. And, and that's, that's the difference between science and pseudoscience. Uh, you know, somebody makes a scientific claim, and immediately everybody else working in that field jumps into their lab and tries very hard to prove those people wrong. They're very skeptical because, after all, this guy's a competitor. That's the way science works. But for people who are not professional scientists and can't go in the lab and repeat experiments and things, what can they have in their toolbox uh, when they hear someone make an extraordinary claim about uh, some something that sounds a little sketchy? Well, I mean, you know, various people have uh, tried to address that question, including most famously Carl Sagan. He had sort of a baloney test, right? <laughs> is, is this real? Is this likely to be baloney? And there are a lot of sort of clues. I mean, in the end, all you can do is say, look, you know, show me the evidence. Can I stack it up at the Smithsonian, right? Or, or is this just a, an eyewitness report by some guy? Right. So the, the question is how many people actually you know, are, experience the phenomena? Were there any measurements? Do you have independent data? Uh, are the people who are telling you this uh, story in many cases in the UFO area, are, are they credible? Are they trained? You know, you can, you can, people love to poo-poo scientists as being wrong, and scientists occasionally are wrong. But on the other hand, they're also trained. And to, to poo-poo them is a little bit too easy. So, you know, that sort of thing. What is the credi credibility of the claim? Is it appearing in a refereed journal? That's a very important point. Now, there have been instances of things appearing in refereed journals that end up being uh, uh, shown to be wrong. Uh, it happens fairly oh, frequently. <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm sure just about every journal in any discipline has at least one paper that's wrong. Sure. Now, now, there was uh, one recent one, fairly famous, um, the Hoover meteorite uh, yes. that appeared in the Journal of Cosmology or something, and where the uh, researcher claimed that he saw evidence for um, bacterial uh, life in a meteorite. Uh, that caused a bit of a kerfuffle. It did. It did, in fact. In fact, I was the first guy that Fox News called up, believe it or not, even though I wasn't in the country. I don't know time. whether to say congratulations. Yeah, or I, I, I'm not sure whether I should take that as a compliment, but, but it is true. <laughs> but yeah, the, what this guy was claiming, he'd opened up a meteorite, a, a very special kind of meteorite, by the way, of which there are only like 10 examples uh, in, in, in collections of tens of thousands of meteorites we have you know, stacked up somewhere. Uh, this, this is a meteorite that comes known to come from a comet. In any case, you look at it under a microscope, and you see these little squiggly things that look like bacteria here on Earth. And he claimed on that basis, plus uh, some chemical evidence, the, the, the presence of things called polyaromatic uh, hydrocarbons and stuff like that, polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, various other kinds of evidence. He said, look, those are the remains of bacteria that are, you know, were born in a comet. That would be very interesting because that would say that life on Earth, in fact, did not originate on Earth. It originated in comets, and we are all de descendants of, 
you know, cometary uh, ancestors. That would be very interesting. But a lot of the evidence was, if you will, morphological. In other words, it, look, at, look at these squiggles. See how much they look like bacteria. Well, you know, Joel, I can step outside here and look up at the clouds, and I'm sure I'll see something that looks like my aunt or, you know, past presidents or something. That doesn't mean they're presidents up in the clouds. Uh, you know, that kind of morphological evidence is very, very weak. The chemical evidence has also been subject to a lot of criticism. So probably this isn't true, but it, 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 but it was in a referee journal, and this guy works for NASA. He's a credible guy. That's the way science is. People are going to make mistakes, but if, if they're not making mistakes, they're probably not working on the edge. And the point is that others then check to see if they can either reproduce it or find arguments against it. Absolutely. That's, that's, it's self-correcting, as, as it is said. So moving a little further afield, uh, will the Earth meet its demise in 2012? Uh, you know, uh, you can do, elect not to pay your estimated uh, income tax for 2012 if you wish. I do not recommend this, however, because I'm willing to bet you a cup of Starbucks that the world will not end in 2012. <laughs> okay, well, I, I won't take you up on that. Uh, how about, uh, I'm, do you get a lot of questions about astrology? Uh, occasionally, not too often. I, I, I'm not sure that the belief in astrology is quite as strong as it used to be. There was a time, you know, 500,000 years ago, when I think astrology was taken a little more seriously than it is today. Uh, people still read their horoscopes. They appear in virtually every paper in the, in the United States, for sure, uh, because it's kind of nifty to, to uh, see what, uh, you know, is going to happen to you. But actually, I think that if astrology actually worked, if it worked, then I could tell an astrologer my personality traits, and they would tell me what day I was born. Mm -hmm. Well, how um, I know the theme of this year's Conference of World Affairs is uh, what matters. So in keeping with that theme, why does it matter if people hold pseudoscientific beliefs? I mean, I, what, why does it matter? Yeah, I think that's an excellent question. I often ask it myself. You know, if people want to believe that we're being visited by aliens, I've got to say I never have had a flight delayed at the Denver International Airport because of alien aircraft. It seems to make absolutely no difference. And then you can say, well, okay, if they want to believe it, they want to believe it. The problem is that there are some areas in which belief in pseudoscience has real consequences. If you think of, for example, uh, global warming, environmental uh, difficulties and so forth. The fact that people don't believe the scientists, that has obvious consequences. It certainly has consequences in medicine. Think of uh, the question of autism and vaccines. This is mostly, this is entirely pseudoscience and so forth. The, uh, the, the case of Baby Faye many years ago. Uh, Baby Faye died because somebody in the medical field didn't believe in evolution and that sort of thing. So there are cases where pseudoscience, in fact, has real and in some cases dire consequences. So I think that uh, combating pseudoscience is actually a worthy battle. I, I, I assume that this uh, work at SETI uh, kind of butts heads a little with uh, the creationist evolution argument. It, it does, although you might wonder why. Obviously, I, I think evolution is right, and, but, you know, and you can apply that to circumstances that might obtain on another planet, that the, you know, if evolution occurred here, why not somewhere else? Right? So that sort of underpins the idea that there may be life in space. But people often make the analogy. Uh, Michael Crichton, the famous novelist, actually accused SETI of being very much like a, uh, uh, you know, that, that it, it was very much like the creationist argument. 
that, doggone, we have a very complex system, and consequently there must be some design behind it. And they say, you're looking for a very complex signal, and you're assuming that there's intelligence behind it, and that's your, your modus operandi. And, and yet when people do that in terms of uh, creationism, you criticize them for it. So there was this very peculiar argument. Uh, he was wrong on many counts there, but never mind. It is a subject that does come up, yes. Well, I appreciate you coming in, taking time out from scanning the skies to hear a signal to come in and talk to us a little bit about uh, pseudoscience and some of the things you do. It's been really a pleasure, Joel, and I, I hope people will come to our sessions at the Conference on World Affairs. Yes, uh, that was Seth Shostak, senior astronomer at SETI Institute. Um, as Seth said, he's in town as a participant in the Conference on World Affairs. He will be on a panel today titled Aliens and Humans at 1230 in the UMC West Ballroom at the CU Boulder campus. He will be on several other panels throughout the week, and you can find the panel times and locations and other information about the conference at www.colorado.edu.cwa. Listening to How on Earth, I'm Susan Moran. Our next guest, another Conference on World Affairs speaker, just might spend some of his waking hours thinking about extraterrestrial wildlife, but then again, he might not. Although I think his concerns are a bit more earthbound, shall we say, but he may surprise us. Larry Schweiger is president and CEO of the National Wildlife Federation. It's a large conservation organization in the U.S. with more than four, th- four million members, a unique mix of sportsmen and environmentalists. In recent years, Mr. Swagger has led the organization to confront the climate crisis and to protect wildlife for future generations. He authored a book on global warming and wildlife called Last Chance, Preserving Life on Earth. It was published in 2009. So, Mr. Swagger, welcome to the show. Thank you. Let me get this question out of the way in the spirit of Conference on World Affairs. <clears throat> Are you spending any of your waking hours thinking of extraterrestrial <laughs> wildlife or, you know, what it might look like out there? Well, I, I, I would say that we do worry about uh, invasive species that are brought in from other parts of the world. And so I, I think our, our our work is bound by the uh, this planet and uh, the, the things on it. Uh, we do feel that uh, invasive species are one of the factors that are causing the decline of a number of species on the planet. We are moving organisms in places where they didn't exist, where they didn't uh, fit into the natural system, and it's having a, a very serious uh disruption. So these are aliens of sorts and very, <laughs> very uh, tenacious, right? They, they, the they, tend to, they tend to compete to natives. They tend to not have uh, their, their control mechanisms uh, with them. Uh, we're seeing, uh, for example, uh, a species of fish, the uh, Asian carp, uh, moving up the Mississippi River system and now headed towards the Great Lakes, uh, has enormous potential for disruption of the entire Great Lakes system if it gets in there. It's huge. Um, and I wanted to ask you about the National Wildlife Federation itself. It started in, what, 1936? So this is one of the long-standing ones. And this curious mix of, well, hunters, anglers, environmentalists, and some would say, and some probably do believe, that basically are they trying to save wildlife <clears throat> to shoot it? And then you have others, and you have this more recent, I suppose in the last decade or so, mission of yours that's really combating climate change. I mean, within all that, is there much of a 
clash of cultures or at a time when politics is so polarized, maybe you've got this blend we all need, you know, hunters, environmentalists, and can we sleep together, so to speak? <laughs> well, National Wildlife Federation is uh, an interesting organization because in states where we're blue, so to speak, National Wildlife Federation, the state affiliate is blue. And in states where we're red, we're, we have a, a much different makeup. We, we have uh, 46 state and territorial affiliates that we work with. Uh, the federation is made up about one-third Republic, one-third Democrat, one-third Independent. We believe that we're all consumers. We're just the, – the, the difference between those who are members of the National Wildlife Federation and perhaps others is that we're consumers that care. Whether we hunt or whether we hike or whether we fish or whether we just enjoy nature, we all come together because we care about nature and we care about taking care of it, passing it on to our children and to their children. So it's preserving the wildlife whether you want to preserve it to – shoot it and let your grandchildrens shoot it, but in either case, it's habitat preservation at the core? or It's habitat uh, protection, but also uh, I would suggest, that at least here in the United States, that the species that are actually hunted are not the ones that are that are on the edge. It's a, it's a species that are, that are so-called non-game species that are moving closer and closer to the brink in this country. And around the world, there are a number of other threats. The ocean uh, uh, oceans, for example, the marine fisheries are in great danger. We were overfishing almost the entire uh, planet with the exception of the uh, Arctic Sea. And, and when the ice melts out of the Arctic, we'll overfish that too. But we, we need to tackle uh, these management issues in a way that uh, is responsible so we don't have the tragedy of the commons in our oceans, as an example. Uh, so all of us, everyone who eats fish, are contributing to that uh, that problem. But we, we, we need to find a common solution that works across the world with every nation. Yeah, and speaking of the Endangered Species Act, I mean, is one of the biggest challenges now this appropriations bill? Isn't the proposal to pretty much gut the EPA by about a third of its budget, and that would mean targeting the Endangered Species Act, the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act? What What's the biggest challenge for you? Well, one of the <clears throat> things that's happening in Washington is um, lawmakers, uh, particularly Republican lawmakers, but not limited to that, are... Um, are trying to basically clip the wings of EPA from enforcing the clean air, clean water, and other important environmental statutes that the the Congress's previous had established. Uh, we're also seeing that because they don't want to cut the entitlement programs <clears throat> and the other defense and other large expenditures, they're going after a certain number of expenditures. And EPA, for example, is targeted with a close to a 40% cut in its budget. Well, you can't just take a meat cleaver to a small agency like EPA. <laughs> if you look at conservation programs uh, in 1970, our conservation programs, Interior, EPA, all the other agencies, got about 2% of the federal budget. Today, it's about 0.6% of the budget. So mm -hmm. we have drastically cut the numbers of dollars that are flowing to managing our natural resources, and yet there's this effort to further cripple those agencies uh, that desperately need uh, better funding situations. So the laws we have are the endangered species themselves, I mean, the, particularly the, the ESA, the Endangered Species Act? The Endangered Species Act, I think, is at risk. I also think the Clean Air Act, uh, there's four uh, amendments right now pending before uh, the U.S. Senate to uh, take away EPA's authority to protect us against carbon dioxide pollution. So, you know, here's uh, one of the great pollutants who, that has never been controlled. We've known for a long time that it's very harmful to life on Earth. And we are uh, going to take away EPA's authority 
to actually control and regulate that pollution. And, and they, they create these stories that are not true, like EPA is going to regulate uh, your breathing and, you know, all this kind of crazy stuff. EPA is going after the large emitters, uh, the coal-fired power plants, the, uh, the cement kilns and other large emitters to try to control their carbon emissions. And I think that's an appropriate and responsible step. And the Supreme Court, even a conservative Supreme Court, said that EPA had the responsibility to do that. Right. So you spend a lot of time in Washington, obviously, as a big <clears throat> lobby group as well. What gives you most cause to be worried at this point? I mean, and and do you think the Obama administration is fighting hard enough? Well, I, I think uh, Lisa Jackson on um, you know, an EPA is trying to do her very best to enforce these laws. She's taken steps to address mercury emissions, for example, and, and is moving to regulate carbon. And it's that pushback that we're, we're seeing. And I, I think the White House needs to uh, <clears throat> needs to defend um, uh, Lisa, Lisa and the EPA uh, better than they have been. We asked them to do that. They've recently now said that they're going to take steps to, um, um, you know, to oppose the, the, the riders that are being uh, moved forward in the, in the Congress. And uh, we just got a couple minutes, but I want to ask you here in the West, it looks like um, perhaps from your and many perspective, some sign of hope is some bills that would, some Senate bills that would require energy companies to release more information, to disclose information about the toxic chemicals they use in the so-called hydraulic fracturing, you know, where they're injecting what the chemicals and sand and water to extract more natural gas. Does that look hopeful? And are you guys pretty strong behind that? Well, in 2005, uh, the the Congress uh, took away uh, the federal government's right to enforce uh, clean air, clean water, toxic waste, and a number of other uh, laws on fracking. So fracking is basically a um, an outlier now that has no federal oversight, uh, and we need to bring that into place. So we need to know what's in the chemicals. We also need to know what's coming out. For example, the Devonian shales that are being fracked in the east have high... This is the Pennsylvania, this is Pennsylvania territory, right. And right. they have high levels of, in some parts of that system, they have high levels of radioactive material because they're ancient. They're 400 a million year old uh, shales. And so as we frack this material, we're bringing up not only the toxic chemicals we put down there, but also the toxic chemicals that are in that uh, Devonian shale. And uh, it's really important that we know what's in there and we know how to control it so we don't put it into our drinking water supplies or dump it in our local rivers. And that's what's happening and that's why there's such an uproar. But it's because, uh, frankly, the Hal Burton exemption in the, in, the, uh, in the energy law of 2005 created this mess. You mean not not requiring them to disclose? Not requiring them to right. do to comply with clean air, clean water, safe drinking water standards. None of that is uh, is a part of the federal uh, regime right now. Good thank Dick Cheney for much of that. Exactly. <laughs> well, I'm afraid we've got to close it off. You can well that was Larry Schweiger, head of the National Wildlife Federation. Thanks so much for coming to the show. You. you can join him this morning at 11. He'll be on a panel titled "Species Extinction Is No Big Deal." And that'll be at Old Main Chapel on the CU campus. He'll also be on other panels. So as we said before, for more information on Conference on World Affairs and what the panels are, go to www.colorado.edu slash CWA. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Today's show was produced with the help of Shelley Schlender. Tim Morton wrote our theme music. Tom Wassinger produced it. Additional music, the song I Ain't Superstitious by Jeff Beck.
<laughs> Can't listen at our regular time? No problem. Just go to howonearthradio.org and click on the iTunes subscribe button. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911.